As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined as I always am by my good friend and producer Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how are you doing? I'm so excited for this episode, John. Yeah, me too. It's uh, very hot here in the UK. It's also very hot in the US. We've been comparing our heats and uh, yeah, arguing about who has it harder. But yeah, when it comes to hot things, the episode itself is what we're most excited about. It's a really good one. We got to talk to George and Ali of the Not The Top 20 podcast about everything outside the Premier League happening in English professional football. Mike, you listened to that conversation. What did you make of it? Well, this podcast and TIFO itself has the DNA of, of diving into really interesting narratives, giving insight into not well-known topics. Well, this episode does exactly that. We all know that the Premier League gets all the media coverage and hype, but today we talk about the English Championship, League One, League Two, and about those clubs and those stories. Yeah, it's really, really fun. Loads and loads to get through because it covers 72 teams. And so I think probably the best thing for us to do is just jump straight in. So the next few voices that you'll hear will be George Ellick and Ali Maxwell of the Not The Top 20 podcast. For many of us, it's tempting to equate English football with the Premier League, but of course, one of the beautiful things about league football in England is that you can trace your way down the pyramid until you get right to the grassroots level, meaning that, in theory, any club could make it to the very top. And if you do trace your way down the pyramid, you'll find yourself passing through three leagues before you reach the highest level of semi-professional football. And in those three leagues, there are 72 clubs, and all too often those clubs can fall between the cracks of the general media coverage. But fortunately... There is, which is sounding a little bit like uh, the intro to, was it Banana Man? But, um, but yeah, fortunately, I am joined by a couple of guys who can help us out because there is a media outlet which is dedicated to covering these teams. It's the not the top 20 outlet now, not just podcast, and the creators of that outlet are here with me today. So Ali Maxwell, George Ellick, welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. Thank you very much for having us on, John. Thank you, yeah. It feels like a, kind of this is your lifestyle as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great having you you guys on. There's plenty for us to talk about because, mm. as we've just said, you cover 72 clubs, <laughs> which is a lot. So in this episode, we are going to work our way through the three leagues that you cover, which, to be clear, is the Championship, which is the second tier of English football, League One, which... 
perhaps confusingly is the third tier of English football and League Two, which <laughs> obviously is the fourth tier. But before we get to that, I'd love to talk to you about the phenomenon of lower league football in general. So I suppose the big question to begin with is, why did you both decide to cover not the top 20 teams in England? <laughs> I think it's where certainly my passion and Ali's expertise lied at a certain time. Um, we, I'm an Oxford fan, um, so my kind of life growing up is watching EFL football and being passionate about EFL football. I think when you're somebody who supports a team that spends the majority of its time, although I say that, we had a quite a long time in non-league as well uh, whilst I was growing up, but that's where um, you really begin to love the leagues. And, and Ali was working as a researcher on the uh, EFL highlight show at the time. So we've been friends since we were about 10 years old. Yeah. Um, and there reached a moment, I think, where both of us decided that there was... Um, not that much mainstream coverage of, of EFL football. I think that's still kind of the case. Um, we are going up as a podcast uh, that had just ended with um, yeah a, a name that might be familiar to a lot of people. David Walker was uh, was a host of that of Football Clichés now fame Trailblazer. But we um, yeah we just knew that given how many fans there are who go to these games every week and the disproportionate amount of coverage that, that it gets, there was a, a market for it. And what we learned quite quickly, I would say, is that. Even if you support Oxford or you know Swindon or whoever else it is in the EFL, that doesn't necessarily mean that you care about the rest of the teams within the leagues. Like quite often, you will support the club that you love, and therefore, and then watch match of the day, and then read Premier League analysis. And hopefully, I guess what we're doing is trying to provide an opportunity for those people to have a one-stop shop of where you can listen to a podcast or read a newsletter, which will give you all the information that you need to know and make those leagues more appealing. Yeah, I think there's a there's a personal and professional aspect of it. On the personal level, we are very old friends. We were going to the pub talking about lower league football and uh, professionally, we both had a point where we had ambitions to work in broadcasting, but uh, particularly when you're in your early 20s, the actual chance to broadcast and practice and, and tweak and get better, hopefully, uh, are well, that was few and far between, really, until podcasting came along. So we've been going for seven years. 2016, we began. It was early days of podcasting. We were by no means football ramble-esque trailblazers, but still, you know, in there early, I would say. And, and it's been an amazing journey within the podcasting industry. We sit here in amazing studios and, you know, major corporations, everyone basically doing great podcasting. Um, and uh, it, it's it's been an incredible journey for us with the opportunities that we've both had. Uh, but as George said, and I was interested your phrase, you know, things that fall between the cracks of mainstream media coverage. Our goal, very basically, was to try and provide some level of Premier League type analysis to the clubs that hadn't really had that or anyone really spending much time doing that yet. And what we realised quite quickly, it wasn't it wasn't like putting a bucket and catching some drips through the cracks. It was actually pretty big cracks. And, and um, we felt very quickly this immediate reaction from a, from an audience and a potential audience that that we knew would be would be sort of grateful for the coverage engage with it and uh, and we've you know we've been very lucky with that over the years you've both touched on the general attitude towards lower league football in England um, I'm interested to hear what you think the state of that general attitude is now and how it's changed in the seven years that you've been covering it I, I honestly find this a difficult question partly because we're so ingrained in it you know uh, we both 
certainly are fans of the Premier League, cover the Premier League professionally as well uh, as, as watching it for fun on the weekends. But we are also in a bit of an EFL vacuum necessarily because of the work that we do and the, the sort of network that we've built of EFL fans that we engage with. Um, 95% of the fans we speak with are probably EFL fans. So we probably have a slightly <laughs> warped perception of how important it is in the, in the grand scheme of things. And also most of my friends are like me and George, football obsessives who even if they don't support an EFL club, still keep an eye on it because they like the, they like the stories and they, they understand the value in lower league football. So it's difficult to get a full picture, I think, from our perspective. But I do think there's great pride in the English pyramid and, and correctly so. And, you know, it is regularly pointed out the attendances that we get in the fourth tier, in the fifth tier, in the National League as well, you know, dwarfing second tiers in, in most other countries in the world, um, certainly third tier. So, you know, for, from our point of view, it seems obvious that with the promotion and relegation system, you just have a sporting structure that turns over every year and therefore the stories are different every year and and therefore for us it never gets boring and it never ceases to entertain whereas there is an argument that in the Premier League, particularly at the top of it, the stories at the top of it only change ever so slightly in the grand scheme of things over the, over the years. I think that's a big benefit of it. Yeah, and you both cover the Premier League elsewhere in the work that you do. Um, and I, I guess the, the 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 big narrative is often that that people are getting bored of the really elite football because of that lack of um, diversification that that you have there. Do you think that that has impacted your audience? Do you think you are getting people who are fed up of Premier League football dropping down and supporting their local club? I'd like to say yes, but I, I'm not sure we've necessarily seen it. Like anecdotally, you hear some people say like I've given up the Premier League, I'll go to the EFL. But to anyone listening to this who finds um, modern day football not to their taste, who misses the days where players weren't so media trained and were more human and showed that more emotion off the pitch as well as, as on it. For those people who don't like VAR and everything that comes with it and are therefore feeling disillusion- disillusioned with top flight football, I would say the championship and League One and League Two are basically what football used to be when we were growing up. Like it's football in the 90s. These are normal guys, guys you can relate to. Yes, they're still earning good money, but not the kind of money that we're seeing in the Premier League itself so it's important to point out I think biologically they are the same amount of human the same level <laughs> yeah, of human sorry, <laughs> potentially not Erling Haaland um, <laughs> but uh, yeah uh, absolutely what George says it's uh, it is really good fun genuinely it is really good fun and I and I think I'm the sort of person particularly maybe as I've got older and in the media landscape and social media and Twitter and the amount of noise surrounding the sport and how serious it all is, I am the sort of person that increasingly wants to step back and say to people, Let, let's remember that football's our favourite thing. It was our favourite hobby growing up. It was our favourite, basically the thing that we're most passionate about in the whole world. And for me, that's a very positive emotion. And it should be about enjoying it and finding it intriguing compelling interesting and fun i think sometimes i look around and i worry that that's been lost a little bit Uh, and i i absolutely am not saying that efl fans don't take their club just as seriously as a manchester united fan because that is not the case you know um they have the same grumbles and qualms or broadly the same grumbles and qualms uh in league two as, as premier league clubs do with managers you know not having a plan b and all those sorts of fun cliches but overall it is great fun to follow as a neutral and, and that's where we try and position ourselves as enjoying it being passionate about it hopefully that coming across 
Um, but also trying, because we're interested in football analysis as well, to provide some level of analysis where we can. Um, it's difficult to do it with the same depth as you might in the Premier League um, across three leagues and 72 teams. But we, we give it a good shot. I, I also think with the the attitude to the league's question, I think there is a degree to which the quality, certainly the championship, is is kind of underestimated and underappreciated. Like, we always have to update this, and I've just kind of quickly looked now with the, the international break happening at the moment. From my quick check, I think only four of the players in this England squad haven't played EFL football at some time. That will either be players who went out on, on loans uh, from elite clubs such as, you know, Levi Colwell or Harry Kane, or players who were developed and nurtured within the EFL, like Abereze, for example. And there seems in my mind at least since we've been doing the podcast the success rate with which elite talent is brought out of the championship and settles into elite level football as is a good example Elise of course who you know I think we can all agree is one of the most exciting talents not just in English football but in European football Jack Grealish obviously thrived at championship level when people were doubting his ability Ollie Watkins James Madison like there are so many examples of these players who are quite clearly the cream of the crop who go on to very good things and for that reason, it's surprising to me, I've spoken about this a lot on, on Twitter, like the likes of Alex Scott, who's just moved to Bournemouth. I think anyone who's watched Scott a lot recently can appreciate just how good he is going to be. And, you know, fitness, if, if his fitness stays with him, he doesn't have bad injuries, he will be the next player that's going to be linked to the elite clubs in, in, in England. However, there doesn't seem to be the same kind of fanfare around the signing of a player like him compared to if you were to go out and look at young Spanish talent or young young Italian talent who we see coming over to, to the Premier League a lot. So, yeah, I guess that's I partly see it as part of our job is to, um, and, and the same I think can be said of, of, of coaching talent too and what we're seeing in the last couple of years where the pathway for, for managers in the championship to get elite level jobs previously was you had to get promoted. We're now seeing that shift a little bit, um, obviously with Graham Potter moving to, to Brighton, that was one, the big landmark moment where he, he was a guy who had a team in Swansea mid-table and still got that, that big job move, moving ahead. Um, but yeah, I don't necessarily think the perception of how good our second tier is, is reflected in the way that it's discussed. And in my mind, you know, it's it's probably the biggest or best league outside the European top five or six. So it's something that needs to be protected and appreciated and because um, it's, a, it's a hotbed of talent both on the pitch and the dugout. Mm. I was saying to you guys before we started recording that one of the things I really want to emphasise in this podcast episode is that for a lot of people, when they think of the, the lower leagues, they just think, oh, you know, there's these 72 teams who aren't in the Premier League and, you know, each one of those leagues is is presumably exactly the same, roughly. You know, you've got a few teams that I will have heard of, won't have heard of, don't really know what's going on. But I think that what I really want us to emphasise is that each of those leagues is very different, has very different teams in it. And the, the reality of those leagues, both financially, I mean, the Championship is a league where Premier League teams drop into, take parachute payments with them, so there's a lot more money there. That's going to influence things. Uh, league Two, for example, has four team, two teams that get that relegated and four that get promoted. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas League One has four teams that get relegated <laughs> and, and only three teams that get promoted. So the the reality is is that each of these teams are going to each each of these leagues is going to end up looking quite different. So mm-hmm. I, I just wondered what you guys thought in terms of each league having a, a sort of different flavour, different tactical realities, different expectations from what you want from coaches or players working there, uh, and and whether or not you think that shifts through time whether or not in the again seven years that you've been covering these leagues whether or not you think oh I have a sense of what league two is like mm. this is this is these are what the teams are going to try and do whether or not it's changed a lot 
during that time? Yeah, I think it it, it is evolving all the time, just like uh, top level football uh, is and does. And part of it is things that you would expect, I guess, tactically, almost like the, the I would punch back at any stereotypes that suggested it's all four four two and long ball and hit the big man and see what happens from there because that is entirely inaccurate and has been for some time. However, from the championship to League One to League Two, you do get a pretty consistent sliding scale of things like um, direct play, uh, of things like, you know, if you just take the average number of passes that a League Two team plays, it's less than a League One play uh, team plays, less than the average championship team plays. They complete their passes at a lower percentage. There are, There's more crossing in League Two. Um, the goal kicks go longer. So... You know, I'm. You know, probably better than anyone, John, that these are generally things that have changed slowly at the top of the game and gone in in the other direction. And it is a bit of a sort of sliding scale down to League Two. Uh, and I think that there is also there is a, a bit of a sort of uh, lag into how leagues adopt things and what happens next. So on a very, uh, you know, to use one example, the the heavy use of three at the back systems, I believe was inspired by uh, Conte's Chelsea uh, and then Chris Wilder's, uh, or actually probably Nuno's Wolves in the championship, then Chris Wilder's Sheffield United. And then we were in a position where last season, more than half of the teams in the 72 were playing three at the back systems, you know, as their standard shape and not a lot of fluidity within that pretty rigid stuff and the goals per game rate was very very low compared to the you know the last decade or two um since then interestingly in the championship i wrote a piece about this on our newsletter on ntt20.com last week over the summer almost every championship club has moved away from three at the back systems and moved to general 4-3-3 shapes, some of them now doing quite funky things in and out of possession, such as Southampton and Leicester in particular. And what do they need for that? They want these speedy, dribbly, 1v1 wide forwards that all the very top teams have. Um, but of course, the they'd built squads for three at the back system. So suddenly the summer transfer window is impacted. People trying to find this profile of player that is, you know, by definition, quite a mercurial role. You know, a 1v1 player is high risk, high reward. And the I think we all know from watching any level of football, those are the players that both excite you and frustrate you probably the most. So there's been a big turnover in the championship, but it hasn't dripped down to League One and League Two. So maybe next year we might see League One and League Two maybe start to move away from the three at the back systems that's kind of been popularised in the last few few years or so. I also think that the leagues have an identity that definitely switches season on season within what is needed to be successful as well. So like, it's not always the case that expansive teams succeed in the championship. It has been in the last few years, but that, you know, if you look back um, prior to that, you know, going back to, to Nuno's Wolves, for example, not that long ago, that wasn't necessarily the case. And I think it's interesting when you see the teams that have progressed quickly through the leagues and how their identi- identities have changed throughout that's indicative of that. Like Luton are the, the key example, obviously, who came up out of the National League and have now got to the Premier League. Like in League Two under Nathan Jones, they played incredibly expansive football, really attacking, possession-based. In League One, they had Jack Stacey and James Justin and on, as wing-backs and just having that kind of quality out wide and pace and athleticism meant that they were able to dominate teams with two up front. Jones left, came back in the Championship and they adopted this very, very direct, very high-octane pressing style. So there you can see where it was almost three different questions were asked of them and they adapted in three different ways under the same manager, albeit not for the second half of the League One campaign, but it was still his team and his 
you know, philosophy and, and, and the system they adopted in order to answer those questions. Similarly, you think back to Brighton, who, you know, you look at the way they play now and had played under Potter and now under Zerbi, but in order to get out of the championship, it was Chris Hewton that they went and got. They knew that they needed somebody who was going to be pragmatic and enable them to play a certain way to get out of the league. So in that sense, you know, it's a cliche to talk about how unpredictable the leagues are, but I do think the fact that you have near constant jeopardy, like I always think whenever Ali and I are sitting at Wembley, on championship playoff final day and we see the unbelievable scenes in the winner's end at the end of that game and I'm sitting there being like it's bizarre because obviously you know why they're so I mean it's the biggest relief possible that you've got to the promised land or whatever but you're effectively celebrating the prospect of just trying to somehow stay up next season and a season of seeing your team basically come off the losing end quite a lot and you know for those we've spoken a lot to Norwich fans in recent seasons who have been like the yo-yo club in recent times and there was definitely a sense a couple of seasons ago and they came down and they were like well at least we're going to see our team just win some games of football ironically they were quite poor last season and didn't win that many but at the same time you understand that feeling of like every season you go into most fans of clubs think this is our season to get promoted whereas realistically the amount of teams you said are going to get relegated plenty more are going to are going to come up and in Coventry in Luton there's been a, a very clear possibility within the EFL that if you have very very good attacking t- sorry very good coaching talent and the right players then it is possible to belie your kind of income and your wage bill in order to still push push yourself up towards the top end and just very quickly one line on top of that managers players highly important but one of the biggest things i think i've learned over the last few years and coventry and luton probably the poster boys for this is that good decision making off the pitch consistently over a period of three to four seasons is probably the most indicative thing of a club that will move up the pyramid and it is a pyramid that rewards that hmm. yeah um, we need to move on to start talking about the leagues but just a quick question to both of you really but do you have a favorite league out of the of the three leagues at the moment oh yeah i always have you know i will feel differently about um, different excitement levels about each league but it's not set in stone which is good it is very fluid and you know i've been pretty down on the championship actually for quite a few years i think it's been fair a fairly poor product in terms of the, the viewing experience you know having branded itself as as the most exciting league in the world i actually think the last few years have been a little below par but now as we sit here i think the start of the season has been absolutely sensational i really think um that that's probably my favorite league at the moment but uh, it's not always the case Whatever League Oxford are in. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I think it's more, you know, we do these 1 to 24 podcasts at the beginning of the season. And if I'm being brutally honest, um, probably the leagues where we're we're getting things right are the ones where you take the most, you know, like last season, for, for example. No, it's because it's more, you know, there isn't a, a league in itself where I think like the tactical trends or whatever or the teams are necessarily that impressive. The enjoyment, I think, comes from covering them when your insight is, is kind of being... You want to be in control. Exactly, where, where what you've said is, you know, last season we called Burnley fairly early and then watching Burnley be as good as they were, you know, emotionally, I think, and probably professionally uh, is, is is a nice experience. But I think, you know, that there's, there's no... It's important to us that we don't become a podcast or a newsletter or whatever else just who just do the championship and then pay lip service to League One and League Two um, because the stories within League One and League Two are often actually the most person and the most interesting yeah and we won't talk about who you've got winning the championship this yeah season, i'm so. still quite confident as well <laughs> um let's move on and talk about each of the leagues so we've already mentioned that league two is um it, it, all of these leagues are very different but they all have 24 teams in them 
Um, but that doesn't mean to say they're the same. So we've already mentioned the League Two has two relegation spots into the National League Premier Division, and there was lots of narrative last season when um, not Notts County and Wrexham were were. Well done for saying Notts County first, even though that wasn't the way around they came up. But it's good to hear someone <laughs> not go for Wrexham straight up. I was going for the underlying numbers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice. <laughs> well done, um, yeah, Notts County and Wrexham both uh, competing for that automatic spot, and then you have to go through the, the playoffs. So uh, a huge amount of jeopardy there, to, to use the word that you've already used. Um, so League Two only has two relegation spots and four promotion spots, three of which are automatic, and the fourth of which is awarded to the winner of a playoff between the fourth and seventh placed teams between all, all of the teams in between those as well, I should say, to clarify. But that's a very different dynamic to some of the other leagues. So mm. I was interested in what you think the impact of that is on the league. Well, I'd say th- the thing that stands out most about League Two is, A, the two relegation spots mean that you have to be genuinely really terrible to go down out of that division, which isn't necessarily the case in, in League One, for example. Uh, it's also, unfortunately, because of the issues around uh, governance uh, that English football has had uh, at this level in particular over the last decade, it's been a division where the bottom spots has generally been occupied by what you'd call, for want of a, a sort of softer phrase, like basket case clubs who have encountered such issues off the field, often down to just horrendous ownership or lack of funding. Um have been relegated because their football team has, has been massively impacted by that. So quite often, it hasn't really necessarily been you know sporting reasons for teams going down to the National League. Um, now, I think the number of clubs that we'd be concerned about, you know, their general welfare is a little smaller than it was, and that's a really good news. For me, the biggest thing is that coming up from the National League are two teams every season, and no... National League team that's won promotion has ever been relegated straight back down. Now, if you think about the Premier League, for example, is often a, a go-to reference point. It is expected that one, possibly two, maybe even all three of the teams that come up from the Championship will really struggle, um, maybe go down. If not, will certainly occupy the bottom seven or eight places in the division. And there have been some some notable exceptions, but that's what's expected. In League Two, the teams that come up from the National League very regularly challenged for promotion straight away um, because of, well, there are, I'm sure there are lots of aspects to it, but you know the conclusion is that the gaps between the top of the National League and the bottom of League Two is fairly negligible. And we had that on steroids this summer where Wrexham and Notts County were promoted from the National League and were instantly installed as first and third favourites for the title. Now, A, it's interesting because that's quite fun, the chance of a double promotion. It's a, it's a great reflection on the pyramid and, and it allows for these great stories to be told, sometimes on Netflix, sometimes on other streaming channels, or sometimes just by the people who are experiencing it uh, without TV cameras there. Um, but you have to think what it means for the rest of the division, because if the two teams coming up are very unlikely to be involved in the relegation battle, all of the teams that finish mid-table in the bottom half have to kind of be looking over their shoulder, making sure that they don't slip up. So I'd say that's a big factor in League Two. And given the, the two teams coming up from the National League being installed as favourites... And because of the, um, the different ways that the uh, financial spend of these clubs is regulated in the National League compared to League Two, made National League clubs a much more attractive investment project, especially for those living in Hollywood. Um, but this wasn't new. So uh, when Salford came up, they were immediately, understandably, given um, the ownership group there, uh, installed as favourites. Stockport, who have a, a very, very wealthy owner, local local uh, fan, businessman, but very wealthy owner, um, also the same. But Salford and Stockport haven't gone up yet. And then you've got Gillingham, who were bought um, last season by a wealthy American owner. So what is kind of coming to be the case within um, 
at League Two is you're getting a lot of stacked teams towards the top end of, of the league. Whereas, you know, you would think if these teams come out nationally, we're able to convert their promotion into another one, then that wouldn't necessarily be the case. So this season, like there was no question looking as a neutral into the into the leagues. Like League Two was the one that looked the most competitive um, and the one where, because, and this is another big issue with the idea of, of how much these teams are awarded for promotions is that you, if you have seven, eight, nine teams in the league all basically overspending in an attempt to ensure they get promotion, yet we know that only four can go up, then realistically that is going to have a massive long-term issue. And we've seen that over the course of the last few years within within EFL football. And I, I do think that COVID seemed to curtail that spending a little bit, but I was pretty concerned and pretty worried by the level of spend in League One and League Two. Um, and how much it's costing to get players out of clubs. Because again, it feels like we're seeing clubs roll the dice where not everyone can can get double sixes really. So that's going to make it difficult if, you know, in the long term, you're going to need some serious goodwill of owners in order to ensure that there isn't trouble down the road. Mm. In terms of what we've been calling feel for, for the leagues, how does League Two feel at the moment in terms of what you're seeing from teams in terms of tactics and um, approaches? D- different, I would say. Um, if you look at the last few seasons in League Two, it's been a very hard. I mean, probably the last decade. The most of the time we've been doing the podcast, it's, it's very, it's a very hard league to get out of playing expansive football. Now that might seem obvious to to, to the people who don't pay much attention. It's League Two. You associate it with, um, you know, with cloggers basically, and, and people who who wouldn't necessarily have the technical ability to play at a high level. That isn't the case anymore. I think because uh, we're seeing Premier League academies um, create technical footballers basically across the, the whole of PL2 and there's much more precedent now for these players being loaned out to, to League 2 clubs in order to, to aid their development I think the the general loan market has way more respect within the Premier League than it had 10 or 15 years ago um, where previously it was pretty unheard of I think for for players who are seen to have a future at a top club to, to be sent out on loan to League 2 um, but having said that the teams that have, have succeeded you know Richie Wellens' Swindon were one who were very good Oxford under Michael Appleton were another who had players who, you know, Kimar Roof, uh, John Lundstrom, you know, players who've gone on to play uh, at the top level. So you had to have that technical quality, I think, to make it work. It's interesting to note that Richie Wellens managed the team who won the league last season in Leighton Orient, yet the football was very, very different to the team at Swindon. It was still like, it, it wasn't attritional, but it wasn't as possession-based and, and as attacking as we saw previously. But this season, because Notts County under Luke Williams um, play proper kind of pos- heavy possession style total football Wrexham under Phil Parkinson who isn't a manager that you necessarily associate with attacking football it's almost like he's had a remit to make sure that it's as entertaining as possible um, their games are unbelievably high scoring uh, especially at home so given that they given they're not counting the start of the season well current bookies favourites top of the league given that Wrexham we probably still anticipate despite not having a great start to the season will get there I think this could be see a little bit of a shift maybe um, in terms of the teams that are going to succeed compared to previous seasons. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. I wanted to ask both of you for each league. What are the narratives and angles that you're excited about in each league? So, yeah, Ali, do you want to kick off? What are you excited about with League Two? Well, maybe it would be seen as an easy and obvious answer, but I think Notts County and their manager Luke Williams are, from a tactical perspective, and someone who's really interested in different types of tactics and what works at different levels. Um, it, it is the most interesting aspect of of League Two. This season, um, they are completing over 100 passes more than the team that complete the second most passes. So that's not 100 more than the average team. That's 100 more than the next most possession-based team. If you're measuring it by passes completed, there's other ways. Not only that, they have the highest XG per shot in League Two. Now, those two things both being true slightly blows my mind. (laughs) Partly because... There's a manager in the championship called Russell Martin, who plays a and has done for a few years now. Played a, a you know in some ways broadly similar uh, style in terms of the onus on on um, holding the ball and and patient passing and, and short passing possession based. But, but the one thing that he has, in my opinion, struggled a lot with, particularly in the championship, has been essentially the quality of the shots that his teams take. There's no issue getting into the final third, but teams are pretty wise to it now, and the way that teams defend against them means that. As a, you know, this is generalising, but to my eyes, they're constantly taking shots with eight bodies between the, the shooter and the goal. And if anyone who knows their data, or anyone who knows nothing about data but watches a lot of football knows that a clear shot at goal is, is much more likely to go in than one with lots of bodies in front of it. So knots are somehow doing all the passing, but when they take a shot, creating the best quality shot in the league. Now, it's, it's early days so far, but I, I find that absolutely amazing. And, you know, I, I haven't necessarily been able to dig deeper in the last few weeks to try and work out exactly what they're doing that is so much better than everyone else just in that particular aspect but it is fascinating and, it, and it's highly unusual at this level you think they're going to go up yeah i do i do i think wrexham will, will go up as well we we had knots county to finish ahead of wrexham uh, in our one to 24s i think we had knots maybe second or third and wrexham in fifth uh wrexham started the season 
as George kind of alluded to, this bizarrely open games where they keep they conceded five twice already this season. Looking at the underlying numbers, watching them um, live against Tramir last weekend, I think those games were aberrations. You know, Ben Foster was in goal. He retired after three games because he, he couldn't get to the corner. You know, these, these shots from 25 yards that looked like good strikes, but nothing special were finding the corner. And, and Foster literally hung up his gloves after three games. So, you know, all being well, the quality of shot and the amount of shots they're conceding is not highly concerning, but their attack is very potent. So I do think those two teams will go up. What about yourself? What's the interesting narrative for you? I think the general... Yeah, it's interesting. Ali says there that you know Notts County and Wrexham will be up there, and I and I, I definitely agree with him. But I think there is there are some surprising lines coming out of League Two this season, um, where you know six games is way too early to be drawing huge conclusions, especially when you're just looking at kind of XG ratio, where game state is going to play a massive part. But having said that, there are some teams who we expected to be very good and who should be good who look worryingly poor. Um, Salford being being the main one, who I think is second bottom in the league so far for XG ratio. Um, apart from one game against Tranmere, they won 4-3. They're showing very, very little going forward. Um, they were a playoff team last year who we expected to kick on because they do have the financial heft to keep adding massively, quality. Massively, despite beating Leeds in the Carabao Cup. Um, and uh, on penalties. Um, <laughs> it's a draw. Thanks, Alex Cairns, <laughs> their keeper. Uh, and then uh, MK Dons are another one. I mean, they are a game state case, but they're, they're bottom of the XG ratio table despite coming second in the actual table. Part of this is because they seem to score a goal within the first 10 minutes of the games and try and hang on to leads. But even so, those are two teams we anticipated would be right towards the top end who are struggling. And then at the other end, um, you've got Mansfield, Wrexham and Notts County, the top three, no surprises there. But Newport County, AFC Wimbledon and Accrington Stanley next up. All three of them, to the eye test, to the numbers, look really, really strong. Newport with Graham Coughlin in, a manager who was previously at, at Bristol Rovers and did okay there, went to Mansfield, didn't quite go so well. Uh, lost their whole back four over the summer. We were pretty concerned for them, um, but they've started the season incredibly well, especially from an attacking standpoint. AFC Wimbledon under Johnny Jackson, who I think after a 22nd place or 21st place finish last season, after relegation from League One that he didn't oversee, but I think it shows, um, it, was, it was telling that the AFC Wimbledon owners put out a statement explaining why they weren't sacking Jackson uh, back in April last year. Again, he's brought in loads of new players. James Tilly, one from Crawley, who started the season incredibly well. But again, I mean, their star striker, Ali Ahamadi, who they rejected apparently near enough uh, a million quid for in um, at the end of the window, uh, hasn't even scored a league goal yet. And they're a team who I think look really strong. And Accrington Stanley, who came down last season from League One, often when you get these sides who are surprising teams get promoted to League One, they kind of tread water for a bit, their best assets get picked off, they get relegated back to League Two and you have to fear for them because basically the reason why they went up in the first place have gone. Uh, but John Coleman is still there, a very new young side. They are incredibly good at recruiting talent from the Premier League in terms of uh, free agents who have been released from academies and loans. They've done it again this season and they, they're another team that look really strong. So going into the campaign, it kind of felt like a bit of a Premier League light in League Two where there were six or seven teams whose revenue um, just dwarfed basically everyone else in the league and it, you kind of were looking at it thinking well why won't these guys just finish in the top seven but early signs are that some of them have serious issues and there are some other teams who look, who look good yeah it's funny hearing you mention AFC Wimbledon because they're my local team I live 10 minutes away from Plough Lane and uh, I went so to Ali. my went local to, team as well I went to one of their games uh, last season it was one of the few that they actually won Lovely. and I had Wimbledon fans offering me free tickets just to, <laughs> just to turn up because they thought I was a good omen who so. was it against? Um, I can't remember. Oh, no. That's embarrassing, isn't it? Um, Stockport, maybe. It, Gillingham. Yeah, it might have been Stockport mm. actually. Um, I was at that one as well. Guys, yeah. 
<laughs> I actually missed the. If it was Stockport, they scored one minute after half time, and I was in the bar having a pint, so I missed the only goal of the game. Do you ever actually sit in your seat when you go to Don's games? <laughs> no, it's a very, very good bar they have. Uh, it's a good stadium to visit if uh, if you haven't already. Yeah, there you go. There's a recommendation for for some League Two football, but we do need to move on to League One, which is another 24 team league. But as we've said, um, there's there's four teams who have to go down from this league uh, to fill the places in League Two, um, and there are now three promotion places, although two automatic and then a playoff place for the teams between third and sixth. So, how does the four relegation places change the dynamic of the league? Because that's a lot of teams that can go down, right? I think it's a simple answer. One in six teams get relegated before the start of the season. There is, you know, the amount of teams that think they might even be threatened by relegation is a is a much smaller number than that. So the panic that sets in, the the lack of safety, I think that this division offers anyone that, that doesn't start the season well, anyone that isn't at it, uh, it, it can really like gobble you up, swallow you up without you really realizing. It's kind of like quicksand and. And George is almost well is better place to to talk about it because his team Oxford were towards the top of the division for three or four years in a row, made the playoffs a couple of times, always you know pushing for that championship spot. It was expected that that would come, and last season just about stayed up thanks to a couple of late season results. So it, you know it really can grab you. We've seen it a couple of times where it's actually happened. You know MK Dons finished um, third, third yeah. in the in League One a couple of seasons ago, and then the season after that. Same manager. I mean, they lost key players. Scott Twine being the obvious one. Harry Darling as well. Um, but I don't think anyone could have predicted just how badly it would go after that. And they got relegated. Doncaster a couple of years before were right, right at the top end in the playoffs in, in League One. Got relegated to League Two. So, yeah, basically there's no room for error. Like if you have a bad season, if you don't recruit properly in in the summer, then a bad season even for a top side can result in relegation to League Two. Do you think it's the trickiest league of the three? I think. It has been. I definitely don't think it is this season. Like, if, if you think back to teams that have recently been promoted out of this league, you know, three seasons ago, two seasons ago, three seasons ago, we had Sunderland in it, we had Ipswich in it, we had Sheffield Wednesday in it. Like, these are teams who, at least by the perception of their fans, when they're in the championship, they should be at the top end of the championship. And they were all in League One at the same time. If you add to that the likes of Rotherham, who basically seem to win the league or come second every single time they're in League One. Um, it's always been an incredibly difficult league to get out of. Um, so when you have teams like MK Dons, like Fleetwood, who got to the playoff semi-finals, Wickham, who managed it by beating Oxford in the playoff final during the COVID year, it, it's rare. It's normally been pretty rare. This season, there looks there looked before the season started to be a serious dearth of quality. And I've seen nothing so far in the campaign to suggest that the you need to be anywhere near as strong as, as you had to be uh, in previous years. should also add that Plymouth Argyle, for the reasons I just mentioned, getting 102 points last season, um, given how strong the league was, was an unbelievable achievement. Uh, and again, goes to show that even in a league where you have Wednesday and, and Ipswich Town, whose resources completely dwarf the likes of Argyle, you can still be run smartly and sustainably and achieve success, not just success, but achieve a triple figure points all, which is incredible. What about the feel of, of League One at the moment? Is is it? I'd say I'm still slightly getting to grips with it. Um, I looked earlier and having written this piece about uh, the sudden move away from three at the back systems in the Championship, which really has been very pronounced. Uh, then I went through League One and League Two and in League One still 14 teams 
going with uh, with three at the back and wing back systems um, and ten with four at the back and it's clearly a very broad brushstroke but you know of the three leagues it hasn't escaped me that the goals per game rate in League One is after only six game weeks incredibly low compared to the other two and the other two divisions have leapt up uh, greatly having having kind of moved away a little bit from the, you know we've seen a lot of games in the last few years that are 3-5-2 versus 3-5-2 and it's not great tactical insight to understand that there's an obvious area of the pitch where the ball finds itself and that is out wide and therefore the the attacking output of your wing backs really does dictate how uh, you know unless you have an unbelievable press and you're unbelievable at set pieces that is really probably the most important part of your attacking um, uh, output and at league one level the quality of the attacking wing backs is fairly low so it's been you know, for me, it's it's a it's always a difficult watch when you see a three five two against three five two in Championship League One or, or League Two. Clearly, that bugbear is coming across on this podcast. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm still kind of getting to grips with with style and tactics here. There's um, Bolton. Uh, we had first in our one to twenty fours. They play a really high possession uh, style under Ian Evert. He's not that interested in in transition attacking, which I'd say is a, is generally a, a pretty big feature of uh, of these leagues. He really does want that control in possession and um, is very very patient indeed. Sometimes I think to, to Bolton's detriment. Um, I'd say they have a, sometimes have a similar issue to, to Southampton in terms of just you know attack v defence stuff against really low block defences and uh, they can be easily frustrated on that front. But as an all round team, they're very very good out of possession as well. Their defence is excellent, so they you know they are to my eyes the best team in the division and, and the most likely to win it um, but so far some some big surprises and you know a team like Stevenage for example who who will be my pick to it you know the question what what do you think is the most interesting team at the moment he's hosting now it's probably it probably is Stevenage with Steve Evans uh, in charge of them because yeah, I enjoyed your Steve and Evans and yeah the, I was going to say, say the yeah, word Steve Evans it's like, it's like, the, working it's like on the Simpsons uh, meme <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's actually quite mad how many of these we've had. Uh, last season, um, Hartlepool's manager was called Paul Hartley. Hartlepool. <laughs> uh, the current Walsall manager, Walsall's nickname being the Saddlers, is Matt Sadler. And then we've got Steve Evansonage as well. So it's all <laughs> racking up. Uh, in terms of the narrative angles that you're, you're interested in, I'll start with you, George, because your team play in, in League One. And <laughs> I, see, I see Oxford United, Cambridge United... Uh, pretty much have the same stat line in terms of results so far, both on 12 points. If only that was the case on opening day when I went to kind of see us beat 2-0. Um, mm. It would have been a more enjoyable trip. Yeah, I mean, I, I told myself I wouldn't talk about Oxford, but here we are. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, The question is which narrative is most interesting to you. It doesn't have to be Oxford. <laughs> John, John brought up Oxford. Um, yeah, I, I would say, I mean, I was going to say Bolton, but you've already kind of done a bit on Bolton. I, I do think there's always something interesting with clubs who... Um, show very clear season on season progression now obviously football isn't linear and I'm not stupid enough to think that because they do it every year suddenly Bolton are going to step forward again but when you look at Ian Everts managerial career so far where he did he went to Barrow uh, in 2018 and given that he's a player who played a lot of Premier League games for, for Blackpool well a season of Premier League football for Blackpool but had a, a you know a career as a a very good centre back in in the top end of the EFL, going down and kind of learning the ropes in the National League, um, it was refreshing. And it was also interesting to note that he played a style of football at Barrow, who you would necessarily associate with um, having the financial capability to bring in the players to be to play this kind of way. Barrow were known under Everts' tenure as Barrow Salona because of the way that they played. 
they um, he, he walked got, so that Luke Williams could run. He, he he got them to the top end of the National League and then was hired by Bolton. And Bolton, um, sorry, he he took them up out of the National League um, in, into League Two and, and was hired by Bolton. And Bolton in his first season finished third. Uh, last season, they, sorry, in 21-22, they finished ninth in their first season at the level. They finished fifth last season. They were knocked out in the playoff semi-finals by Barnsley. And it just feels like as a club, and especially because Bolton are one of these clubs that we've had some serious kind of existential concerns about in recent seasons over uh, under their previous ownership and before um, you know, Sharon Britton took over and before... Ever came in, their three previous finishes have been 21st, 23rd and 23rd. Um, for him to, to come in, for the club as a whole, to be as ob- uh, as kind of upwardly mobile as they are. You look at last season where they brought James Trafford in on loan from Manchester City and off the back of a season in League One, he's being sold to Burnley for near enough £20 million. Connor Bradley, a right back from, from or attacking right wing back from, from Liverpool, who I saw got injured just at the end of the window, otherwise I'm sure he'd have got a championship loan. Um, they're just a, a club who, again, are showing that you don't have to try and do too much too soon, basically. You can build for the future. You can use the loan market cleverly. You can invest in a manager who clearly has a style of play and a vision to the way that they want to do that rather than tearing it up every time things go a little bit wrong. And it has gone wrong because they started 2021 not particularly well. They had an incredible run at the end of the season to force their way into the promotion spots. They didn't start 21-22 great either. So, yeah, I think they are looking the the best team in, in what looks like a pretty weak renewal right now and uh, and a team that I'm watching on with interest. Hmm. How about yourself, Ali? What's the narrative for you? Yeah, I'll go with Stevenage. Uh, they, they've started the season so well. They're in third place. Um, they won promotion from League Two last season when uh, the year before they had been very close to relegation. Uh, in fact, before last season in League Two, uh, I think the bookmakers had them as uh, second most likely to be relegated. Um, but Steve Evans had come in with about six weeks uh, before the end of, of the 21-22 season and had saved them. And it, it, for us, looking at things last summer and knowing a lot about Steve Evans, because he's managed a lot of teams in the EFL, and I think he's won now four or five promotions, it was so clear that he was... Um, being backed to build a squad that would suit Steve Evans' football. Now, Steve Evans' football is incredibly direct and has probably become more and more direct even since he was Leeds United manager back in the day. Uh, His Stevenage side uh, complete the fewest passes per game in League One, uh, only 170 successful passes a game. Um, Their pass completion percentage is 53%. So um, almost every other pass is is one that doesn't go to a teammate. So it's, it's incredibly direct. That is not to say it's highly defensive or boring. Uh, it's, to my eyes anyway, fairly compelling to watch uh, because it is so well planned and it's so difficult to defend against. He's built a, a squad of very large human beings. Um, they are a team with incredible determination and work rate intangibles like that. They defend their box so strongly, but they also they, they thrive in this incredibly old school direct style. And you can tell that they love the fact that all the opposition teams absolutely hate it. And it's it's to their strength. It's helped them win promotion last season in League Two, where in the first half of the campaign, they were unbelievable. In the second half of the campaign, they, they really fell away, but they had done enough to win one of those three automatic promotion places. And I guess the fact they've started this season so well speaks to the fact that A, he refreshed the squad again uh, and has brought in a better quality of player, but still able to play the same way. He's still bloodying the noses of the new teams they're playing against uh, who aren't used to team like this. 
we will see whether there's something in that trend from last season where maybe the second time you play a team like this over the course of a season, you're a little wiser to it. And maybe the physical demands that it places on their players means that they tail off a little bit. Uh, that is something to watch, certainly, with Stevenage. We're, we're not... We're pretty convinced they're a very good team right now, even if people think that they're a, you know, a minnow at this level. The way George and I see it is right now they are one of the best teams in the division. Whether that will be the case for the whole season, I think there's reason to doubt. Um, but given the, the extreme nature of the style, uh, the other end of the spectrum to a Southampton or a Notts County, I think uh, they're certainly interesting. So Steve Evans as the David Moyes of League One? Hmm. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. He's a real... Uh, the difference I th I think between him and David Moyes, and I certainly don't want to go after anyone's character or personality, but <laughs> they are very different personalities. If if Moyes is on the more sort of serious and dour end of the spectrum, Evans is. I don't know if he's always been like this necessarily, but he's you know he's larger than life. He's an incredible people person across the leagues. He's not a popular man, I should say, and and you know referees don't like him. Uh, opposition managers don't like him. He always gets into verbal skirmishes with him and his assistant, who are like sort of synchronized swimmers jumping up and down and, and berating the referee. That you know that they they have a persona that is generally disliked, um, but you can't say he doesn't. A, know himself and have confidence in his ability to, to get the most out of a squad of players. I, I do find that interesting. And so we arrive at the Championship, which is another 24-team league, but with three relegation spots and three promotion spots, one of which is determined by a four-team playoff. But the big thing, as we've already mentioned about the Championship, is that it is the league below the Premier League, and so that obviously has an impact on the financial through the, the financials through the Premier League's wild TV and revenue deals and the parachute payment system that supports those relegated sides. So, yeah, I guess a question, that, that must be the thing which impacts the league the most in terms of uh, the, the overall um, feel of the, for the league. So what do you make of the, of the fact that the, the championship has seen so much money dropping into it in the last few years it's hard to we could probably do a podcast on this I guess because there is clearly a, a, a massive sustainability issue with parachute payments by their very nature this idea of kind of dripping money into or I mean dripping isn't really the right, the right word given the amounts but over three years yeah over three year periods which causes a massive disparity between the league itself interestingly you know even though you'll normally see at least one parachute payment te payment team return back to the premier league i would say by nature or definition of a team being relegated from the premier league there's probably a suggestion there that they aren't being run particularly well in the first place which has a knock-on effect to the fact that you often see teams who come down from the premier league even with their parachute payments not to go back up again which creates an environment where you have six or seven or eight teams in a league at the same time, all in receipt of parachute payments. And as the Premier League um, TV deals skyrocket, parachute payments increase alongside because it's a proportion. So that is not ideal. In terms of the product itself, it means that we see some very good players in the championship <laughs> it means that teams are able to not always highly motivated those no ones. <laughs> but like you, you, you take Leeds for example where the reason why Leeds are able to gamble and basically reject 25-30 million pounds for Willy Nonto is because the parachute payments are enabling them to do so like if you strip that out and you were like you now have a massive drop off in revenue you have to sell your assets in order to break even that, that wouldn't be the case so from a you know, from a, a, a 
a level playing field point of view it's not ideal but from a entertainment point of view which shouldn't be necessarily more pertinent or more important it does mean that the, the quality of the league itself and the players that we see come through and also I think because certainly in 20 sorry in 1920 where Covid struck and teams were suddenly less willing to pay big fees we had players like Ishmael Yassar and Arno Danjuma who in normal seasons would have 100% been sold immediately to Premier League side. Suddenly those teams, mid-table Premier League sides, thinking we don't want to pay 15, 20 million pounds but we don't really know where we are and what's going to happen in the future with our finances. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a very, very difficult topic. I think we, you know, we covered the, the fan-led review on the podcast um, and had Tracy Crouch on at the time. It, it, it feels like there was some movement a few months ago in terms of the possibility of some of the recommendations being adopted. I think the future of parachute payments is certainly one that will hopefully, you know, I think the, the, the redistribution of Premier League money across the pyramid has to be better structured, it just has to be. But whilst not at the, the risk of punishing teams who've been relegated to the extent that they might have existential issues. So it's incredibly complex. Um, I don't want me sitting here saying that it means we see good players be mistaken for me supporting it because, yeah, it, it, it's not a good thing. And, um, yeah, there has to be a, a, a better way to do this. It must add to the chaos of the league, right? Hmm. Definitely does. I mean, every single year, those three teams... I, I mean, there's, I, I'm a little bit bitter about it to an extent because we we really do try and cover every team within a division... A similar amount or an equitable amount it's difficult in the championship particularly at the start of the season because those three teams that come down from the Premier League they generally have the spotlight on them because they've just been Premier League teams so there's still media interest in how they get on because they have the big name uh, players because relegation from the Premier League generally causes such chaos and because in terms of squad building I mean it, it is just incredible um what's been happening at Leicester and Southampton and Leeds over the last few weeks before the window closed. It's not just about uh, which players can they buy, but actually increasingly more about who will they sell, what's the right number of players to sell, um, how much money do they need to raise, uh, and questions like that means that you're, you're five games into a, a season, you're more than 10% into a season, and it still feels like those clubs just aren't really in anywhere near their final shape. So it, it does definitely confuse things and muddy the waters um, there's no doubt about that I was going to ask you about the feel of the championship but I think one of the things that I find really interesting about the championship now is by dint of what we've just been talking about there's a lot of coaches in the championship who are trying to play elite football they're trying to play the sort of football that will um, that would go down well in the, in the Premier League and I suppose Burnley an interesting example of that playing mm. playing really attractive football in, in the championship and then the, the questions that inevitably emerge which is you know once they get into the Premier League should they change the, the way that they're playing but a few you've already mentioned Russell Martin uh, mm. like heavy possession stuff um, and, and there are other coaches who are impressing so um, Ewan McKenna uh, Kieran Kieran McKenna I should say Kieran McKenna at Ipswich and then you've got coaches like Daniel Farker uh, and and um, Maresca as well at Leicester as well trying to play that way how much do you think that impacts the the feel of the league um yeah it's, I mean I'll, I'll my answer for, for the question coming about what you think is most interesting was basically a comparison of Maresca and McKenna so it's interesting when you take two managers there both who have a um 
you know, their background was being an assistant manager at the two Manchester elites. So McKenna was uh, an assistant manager to Jose Mourinho and Oregon Solskjaer at Manchester United. And Zamoreska was academy director and then assistant manager to Pep Guardiola at Man City. Um, so they both come from a, that kind of similar background, albeit Maresca was a, a, a you know, top flight player in, in Italy. Um, but you look at the way they're going about things. When McKenna came in at, at Ipswich in League One, took some time to build the kind of team that he wanted to build and the results didn't come initially but they went up last season playing a brilliant brand of like very aggressive possession-based football making the pitch incredibly wide playing um like with tactical fluidity in terms of often playing with a back four or a back three I went, great temper i went to go and see them yeah and i went to go and see them the other day live and i'm pretty sure i saw a back three but i see all the data sites listing as a back four you know it's out of possession in possession it's a different thing but essentially when you look at the, and this is why we got quite a lot of um, consternation from neutrals in the championship when we put Ipswich third in our 1-24s, where everyone was saying, hold on, who are their good players? Like looking at their squad being like, where, why, what are you seeing here? Like Where are the players there? And I think Ipswich are an incredible example of how a settled squad with an innovative, bright coach who can get his messages across and has a clear idea of how to win games can trump you know, talent in a squad. And with Maresca and Leicester, now it's very early days. We have to say that, interestingly, Maresca's had one managerial job before at Palmer, um, where he took over pretty similar, you know, club who had, believes it should be in the top flight, just been relegated. Um, you know, he had Buffon in goal and other players who'd anticipate would be able to get back there. And things didn't start particularly well and he was sacked after, I think, eight, eight, or, eight or nine weeks. And he said at the time, it was the beginning of the process here and I wasn't allowed the time to implement my ideas. So maybe that's what we're seeing at Leicester. Now, they won their first four games of the season. They lost against Hull on Saturday. So they won four or five, which you think is a pretty good start. They're unbelievably short with the bookmakers to win the league now. But watching them play, like they, they seem very clearly to me like worse than the sum of their parts. You know, you look at, they've got Ian Acho up front, they've got Harry Winks in central midfield, Kieran and Dewsbury Hall, who should just, shouldn't be back playing second tier football anymore. Um, yet in all of their games that they won, they scored within the last five minutes of the game. They're all one goal victories. And if you look at the expected goals in every single game, that's basically one all. Like they were conceding quite a few chances. They weren't creating a great deal. And yeah, I mean, it might click. We're seeing them play again. They, they make the pitch incredibly big like they basically keep their wide players very wide the high players very high they look to stretch teams a lot of intricate passing um but i wouldn't say the russell martin kind of passing for possession's sake and they move the ball very quickly but they're consistently struggling to break to break teams down despite having the kind of squad where you would anticipate they wouldn't really need a you know a particularly innovative coach in order to get them dominating games so in like in a two-team example there you've got within the championship a squad of players who play the majority of their football at the top level international footballers with a a, yeah, a coach in the, in the infancy of his of his reign compared to an Ipswich side where there's very little star quality necessarily but it's a settled squad who won a promotion last season out of a lower league playing not ultimately that dissimilar styles but one in my mind at least right now performing at a high level um, so it'll be interesting to see how Leicester do develop and if we are at the beginning of a process or, you know, is this going to be a, con- a continual theme and could it end the same way as the Palmer uh, yeah. rain went from Maresca? What are the narratives that you're looking forward to? Yeah, I, I just think the Championship's really strong and entertaining, um, but strong 
in terms of the individual clubs and the and what I perceive to be the strength of the league. Now, increasingly, I realise that a people love to pass their judgment on how strong or weak a league looks. It's quite often retrofitted to suit a certain narrative. Maybe they support a team in the league and it's a way of criticising their team. How are we doing so badly in this terrible division? Or uh, whatever the case may be. But I I see people often judging the strength of a league based on its best team or its best two or three teams and going, yeah, look, that, that team that went up, they weren't particularly good, were they? But, but that team, Burnley, were incredible. So, you know, that, that was a strong division. To me, it seems way more logical to judge the strength of a league by stripping out the best four teams and, and the worst four teams, or maybe six and six, and taking the, the sort of medium, taking the middle chunk and trying to, you know, and this is subjective because leagues look different every year, points tallies are different. One team getting a points tally one year doesn't mean they were a better team than a team that got a lower points tally the year before. It's, it's entirely done on, on you know, it's, it's a mathematical thing ultimately that I, it's too smart for me. <laughs> but to cut a long story short, I think the middle chunk at the moment in the championship is at its highest level for a long time. I think that this is down to better managers. You know, George has talked about a couple there, but I think there are some really interesting managers um, tactically, even in that middle chunk. Teams who possibly or probably won't challenge the top, so they won't get talked about a lot. That doesn't mean that they're not trying to do interesting things. Um, I would look at the way that Stephen Schumacher's Plymouth Argyle play with a really interesting kind of mixed style where they've got 1v1 specialists out wide. They they want to generate counter-attacking opportunities because they've built a squad that thrives on that. However, they do also try and br bring on a press by playing short. So I th I think more so than a Russell Martin Southampton team or an Enzo Maresca Leicester team, I think there's a really interesting bunch that play a sort of mixed style of play that I personally really appreciate now um, because I think it, it causes interesting football matches. Um, there's a bit of sort of cat and mouse. Um, you have to accept that teams... You know, Southampton and Leicester have it hard in a way. I know Arteta has complained about this because the majority of teams will just set up to defend very deep against them because of the the dynamics of the game and how, how strong their squads are. It does affect how teams will approach playing against them. So it's not as easy for them to create transition opportunities because teams may just refuse to press them. So um, there are teams who are able to do that and I think it's making for a really entertaining middle part of the league. Um, Yondale Thomason uh, at Blackburn is another one that I'd mentioned. Tony Mowbray at Sunderland, sort of, I think, seen in some parts a bit of an old school British manager, um, but plays consistently some of the best attacking football in the EFL. Is currently playing without a recognised striker, sort of four at the back, then a diamond in midfield and two wide forwards, basically with a, a rotating cast of the falsest of nines. It's th there's a lot of interesting including stuff Joe going Bellingham, on, we should say. including Joe Bellingham. Um, but ultimately, I think the reason that that part of the league feels stronger to me, and why I think points are really hard to come by, which to me is a sign of a strong league, is that over a few years now, decision making off the field has improved. The water level has risen. Recruitment is much better now. Um, I think the hiring of managers and maybe the managerial quality itself is better. Um, and so I think that makes for a really interesting uh, division where it's very hard to pick up points and very hard to put runs together because a lot of teams are, are pretty good and pose you a lot of different questions. You might play Millwall on a Tuesday night and then Southampton on a Saturday and one team may complete 900 passes against you and the other may complete 200 against you. They're going to ask you different questions. So you have to be really flexible to adapt to that.
I mentioned for Stephen Schumacher there, according to your nominative determinism, he should be at Northampton Town eventually, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's too clever a that's joke. Do we, need to, do we need to explain that one? No, to no, the I, think that's, yeah. I think, yeah, if you don't understand that, you listen to the pod <laughs> and you'll find out. Um, George, did you want to say any narratives? For no, I think, I think kind of what I was saying about the other two um, yeah. will probably do me. I'm just trying to work out. Liam Rossini is worth a mention, I should say, because mm. he's also definitely and quite clearly trying to be the guy that plays elite style football in the championship and he's fortunate that he's got a uh, an owner in Ajun Ilajali who's got a lot of money has bought some very good individual players for him so he probably has a good chance to actually walk the walk now um but there is definitely a certain type of manager that we've seen um develop over the last few years who I would say are looking at Graham Potter and thinking can I be really tactically um, like technically impressive in my coaching have that um, emotional intelligence you know very few of the these new guys are blood and thunder very few of these are as extrovert as we as we sort of picture the old school um, British managers a lot of them are a lot quieter seemingly um, but seem to still have great buy-in from their players so it's not a case of they don't have good personalities. They can't motivate. They just seem to do so in different ways. We don't mention Michael Carrick either. That's, yeah, you don't want it at the moment. Yeah, well, it's not going well for well, him. Well, no, I mean, it's, I mean, Carrick's a really interesting one where he, he took over Borough last season after they made a terrible start under Chris Wilder uh, and they were a, a massive, massive data outlier. I think they were like first or second for XG ratio um, when Carrick took over. And, you know, Chris Wilder, even though I can't really see him being a big XG guy, definitely, <laughs> I, I mean, I was, I was actually on Five Live with him last weekend and he said... I left Borough. The performances were much better than the um, than the than the results, which is real football man for. Yeah. We were winning the XG in every yeah. game. <laughs> um, but he, um, yeah, Carrick came in, and you know he. There were some really interesting tactical quirks that we saw from him. You know, he played um, he played Marcus Force, who was very much an out and out nine at Brentford, out on the right hand side as, a, as an inside forward to great effect. He got two Rackpom from being, you know, not really involved in the first team um, and probably looking like he was going to leave to being top goal scorer in the league, playing as a number 10. Um, he moved Ryan Giles further further forward, whose delivery from the left-hand side was, was magnificent. It always looked like a bit of a ticking time bomb defensively and having lost Akpom, having lost Cameron Archer, who was in on loan for the back end of the last season, they've lost the finishing touch and now this season... They are still very poor defensively, but they don't have the firepower to score any goals. So they're currently bottom of the championship. Um, the one the one thing I would say, because I know that everyone likes a good player, and we've kind of rattled off the likes of Elise and Eze and, and Scott and other players, is Adam Wharton, who is, I think Ali and I would say, is, is the next one. Um, and for anyone who hasn't watched him, he's a central midfield player, 19-year-old at Blackburn, homegrown, left-footed, wears his socks around his ankles, and he is just an unbelievable talent uh, he was being linked to Brighton and Crystal Palace uh, over the summer but, but Blackburn apparently wanted more than 20 million for him which understandably they didn't want to spend at this point um, but he will end up going to uh, for at least that if uh, if everything goes well he's one of those players who can carry the ball incredibly well has brilliant um, his, his ability within tight spaces and to play out of tight spaces is what you're looking for especially at that level and to beat a press but he's also, despite not being the biggest, his tenacity off the ball, his willingness to get stuck in, he just has every attribute of a young, exciting, technical and tenacious midfielder, left-footed as well. Like he's he's destined for the top and he's a player that I'm looking forward to seeing more of this season. Hmm. Well, one more question before we 
conclude, which we have to do. But um, what would you guys say to people who have not really followed any football in the lower leagues of England in, in order to really grab their attention? What would you say is the, is the best thing about the lower leagues? Constant, uh, just an abundance of interesting stories, not season by season, but week by week. Um, the, the, it's a blessing and a curse covering 72 teams, the, the curse being you have to put a lot of time in. Um, the blessing being uh, we talk about these leagues every Monday for an hour and a half, and we've never once thought we were low on material because across 36 games, not every single one of them is going to be a cracker, but you know there's going to be some incredible stuff in there. There's going to be some standout uh, performances, a lot of young players that we love to, to try and isolate early and, and identify early and, and track them as they make their way right to the top of the game. That's a huge part of what we do. And managers as well. And um, There's also some hilarious stuff that happens every <laughs> single week. Uh, Callum Guy is a Carlisle United player. Uh, and their Man of the Match Award is sponsored by a local pub. And the local pub gives a like a sort of uh, foil tub of food <laughs> to the man of the match who then poses for a picture with it. And on Saturday, Callum Guy, you know, a serious footballer, <laughs> put in a serious performance, helped win his team the game, was handed a foil tub of pasta penne and um, didn't have a fork. So decided to pose for the picture with his hand in the pasta, <laughs> just sort of cupping a handful of penne. And that's the sort of stuff that, you know, that sort of stuff genuinely does happen every single week. So it, it is for me... There, there will definitely be at least one player every week holding pasta with his hand. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can guarantee that. It's, to boil it down to some very simple words, it is, to me, very interesting and very entertaining. And those are two great things in life. Mm. And, I would, and now I would say is a good time to get involved because next season... Um, Sky Sports have are revamping the way they cover the league. So they're going to be a ridiculous amount of games on TV. Um, so if you're kind of worried about the fact that you have 40 games starting at 3 o'clock on a Saturday, um, it's going to be much more digestible alongside a certain podcast also to help you out. But um, yeah, it's just, it's you know, Ali and I both watch a lot of Premier League football. We're not going to sit here and pretend that we don't. Um, so it doesn't have to be an alternative. And we watch Premier League football for seeing the best players and some of the best teams and some of the most interesting tactical stuff you're going to see. But I think in terms of unpredictability and genuine footballing storylines that could belong in the 90s, um, the EFL is where you want to be. It also, it's improved my enthusiasm for the Premier League, I think. Um, not being purely focused on that division helps me appreciate it more. I genuinely believe that, particularly sitting down after a, a Saturday where there have been, let's say, 36 games between the Championship League 1 and League 2, sitting down on a Sunday afternoon and watching Liverpool play Chelsea. I mean, it's that football is insane now. And you appreciate that more, I think, if you watch not that football uh, to the extent that we do. And I, I love it. I love it. So it, as George said, it's not an alternative. We're not trying to steal anyone. But we, we do think that... a. You know, it sounds like there's a lot going on, and there is. But you can, thanks to uh, digital content creators, you can you only have to invest a, let's say, two hours a week, and uh, and we'll just keep you updated with all of it. So what you're saying is, at 12:30 on Saturday, 
watch Bradford against Grimsby and then your enjoyment of next weekend's Premier League football will be all the more enhanced. <laughs> there you go. And you mentioned digital content creators. There is none better than not the top 20. So uh, the podcast available on all good podcast outlets. But you've started a new Substack, which is the EFL newsletter by NTT20 and it's on NTT20.com. If people want to follow you on Twitter, it's at not NTT20pod, 20 as the digit. Um, and Ali is available at Ali Maxwell underscore and George is at George Ellick and Ellick is E-L-E-K but guys thank you so much for coming on I've had a really fantastic hour chatting to you and uh, yeah enjoy the rest of the thank season thank you very much thank you John <laughs> <laughs>